Amen. Good morning, church. How are you all? Good. I hope we're all lively this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Zane, and I'm one of the associate pastors on staff here at Southport. Uh, and it is my pleasure this morning to continue on through our series that we are doing uh, in First Peter. Uh, and today, in First Peter, we have landed in chapter 3. Um, and this is a great portion of Scripture. We're only going to go through seven verses today. So it's a, it's a succinct little part. So what we might do is we might actually read the text together to start with, do it a little bit differently, uh, and then unpack it together as we seek to hear what God would say to us as a community through it. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 1. It says, Wives, In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of the inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear." Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Is anybody else nervous for me this morning? (laughs) Actually, I snuck in earlier and I just made sure the emergency exit back here was unobstructed. My car is running in the parking lot out the back. I'm ready to flee if I need to. Thanks for this one, Steve. Thanks. No, this is, a, this is a really important text for us this morning. And although our culture has shifted significantly over the past 40 or 50 years, we need to be courageous enough to tackle culturally unpalatable truths. Uh, and so let's pray together before we uh, get into it. Lord, we just thank you so much. We thank you that your word is truth and is light, Lord, and and you call us into a deeper walk with you, and and the way you call us to walk is not of this world. Uh, And so as we open up your word, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through it, that you would convict us uh, and and illuminate things to our minds and hearts that we need to know about you uh, and how we should live before you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are looking at the role of wives and husbands, and for some of you reading that text, uh, that will be difficult. That will be difficult to hear, and I just want to acknowledge that this morning. Uh, The idea of submission might bring up some things in some people here, some frustration, some emotions, some past hurts, because verses like these have been twisted in the past and used by people in a way that is just totally removed from the heart of Jesus for marriage. Uh, And if that is you this morning, I am uh, really sorry that you have experienced that. Uh, That is not Jesus' intent for marriage. Uh, But today, I'm really hoping and praying that we can explore this well so that we can see clearly that God's plan for marriage and the distinct role of men and women is actually really a good thing for a flourishing 
uh, marriage. Because despite what the secular world uh, says and thinks right now, when it comes to marriage, there is a better way. And that is God's way. The problem is, you all know just as well as I do, that every good thing that God has made can be corrupted by our sinful natures. Everything. Good food can be corrupted into gluttony. Material blessings can be corrupted into greed. Even things like marital intimacy can be corrupted by lust, control, or uh, things like, like power, or things like um, strength. They can be corrupted for control and violence, even within marriages. And I struggle to think of a single thing that God has made that is good that we can't corrupt by our sinful natures. But the thing is, is God's good design, when enjoyed and lived out in accordance with his will, is always best. The problem is that sometimes that is really mired and obscured uh, by the loud and vocal culture around us. And it can make God's really good design for things hard for us to see. And I think a good example of this is over the past 15 years or so, I've just heard it repeated so many times in Christian circles uh, that the divorce rate uh, in the church is exactly the same as the divorce rate outside the church. Um, And often... that is actually misquoted data. Data can be uh, misleading because that's usually representative of people who just tick a box on a census. But who here knows that you're not a Christian because you tick a box on a census form? Those couples who actually read their Bibles, attend church services, and regularly pray together as a couple or by themselves, those who actually live out their faith in a tangible, practical way, they enjoy significantly lower divorce rates, lower levels of negative interactions within their marriage, and way higher marital satisfaction. A number of studies have been, uh, have been able to show this, but probably one of the most significant and notable was a study done by Harvard of over 66,000 participants that showed that regular religious service attendance is associated with up to 50% lower divorce rates later on in life. The divorce rates of active, intentional Christian believers are nowhere near that of the general population if you actually practice your faith. If both parties bring God into their marriage, it will be much more likely to be different. Because the truth is, is God designed marriage. God knows how it works best. You see, there is a better way, and that is God's way. Even if culturally we find it really difficult to digest Even Harvard, even other universities like the University of Virginia seem to be confronted with the reality that there just is a better way out there. And so this morning, as we read through this text together, as we go through this, let's remind ourselves that God knows how a marriage should work. And I'm I'm going to try and just be direct about this and uh, not be overly delicate, because despite what the world thinks right now, God created us male and females, and both parties if in submitting to God and his plan for marriage, we'll have the best chance they can. And though we can twist it, though we can corrupt it, God's design is always best. Amen? Amen. Amen. Oh, a positive response. Yes. 
Now, as we look at this text, we need to be sure that we just don't look at it in isolation uh, from the section before. Adam did such a good job last week going through the second half of chapter 2, talking about how we all have to submit, uh, that uh, we have to submit ourselves to every human authority over us, the emperor, governors, the laws over us of the land, as well as the people that we serve and work under. And here, Peter is emphasizing uh, the Jesus way, that the kingdom of God will work unseen kind of like yeast through a batch of dough, changing it from the inside out. He teaches that Jesus didn't come to just kind of violently overthrow the entire system with savage, brute strength and war and death, but instead, like Jesus, we submit ourselves to God and to the authority over us. And as we do that, that's how we create change. And then here, Peter kind of changes gear and he focuses on the role of wives and husbands. Now, Peter here in this letter is, is writing primarily to uh, Gentile Roman churches in Asia Minor. And that's really important for us uh, to understand because here he's speaking specifically to wives who have become Christians that don't yet have Christian husbands. And so the question that Peter is more specifically addressing is how should a believing wife respond in a marriage to an unbelieving husband? Now, to understand, uh, I guess, the church and the, Peter, and, and, and the people that Peter was writing to, we need to understand the cultural and legal construction of the family unit in Rome at the time. You see, Roman families were structured under a rule of law that empowered what was called the pater familius. Uh, pater is kind of translated as father, familius, as family. He was the oldest living male in the household. And because of his position, Roman law gave him almost unquestioned and unchecked power and authority over his family. It's crazy for us to think about. This power wasn't even lost over his children when they turned 18 or even when they got married. He was the authority over them until he died and he passed that on to the next oldest male. He governed everything in the household. No marriage could be entered into, no contract could be signed without his okay, without his permission. No one could challenge him, no one could question any of his decisions. The paterfamilias literally had the power of life and death over his whole family. He could disown or sell into slavery or even put to death his own children, his own adult children, for dishonoring him. He could legally sell his own wife into slavery if he wanted to. And at the time of writing uh, that Peter wrote this letter, there was a practice in Rome where the pater familias would be presented with the newborn baby, babies that were born under his family's care, and he would decide whether or not they lived or died. And if they were unwanted, if they were disabled or deformed, they would be left outside the city walls to die. And side note, which I think is amazing, it was during this time that the, that the growing Christian community uh, would have Christians that would look outside the city walls for abandoned babies and they would take them and they would raise them as their own during this time. Uh, and so a lot of young Roman abandoned babies were, were raised in Christian households during this time and I think that is amazing. But the paterfamilias was the unquestioned head of the household and a sort of priest within the home for the Roman uh, gods at 
uh, that were worshipped throughout Rome. And it's in this context, it's in this context that Peter is writing this letter. He's directly addressing women in his letter, uh, women who have chosen to follow Jesus within this system, who live under this structure, women who put their very lives in danger from their husbands or from the paterfamilias for rejecting the Roman gods and choosing instead to follow Jesus. And here, Peter says to them, submit to your authority too. And do so in a way that you may win them over to Jesus by your behavior. Not with words, not with nagging or battling or arguing, not with adorning clothes or beauty or seduction, but with the unfading beauty of the inner self, the gentle, quiet spirit of a heart of a woman who loves Jesus and shines his light. Here Peter is saying, hold strong to your faith and try to win your husband to that faith, but be careful how you do it. Your best chance will be through respectful, gentle, quiet, reverent, and pure behavior that shines as a strong witness. You see, any other advice uh, other than this from Peter could be a death sentence for these women. Now, before we continue on uh, through this, sorry if this is full on, it's a pretty full on sermon. Anyway, before we go into the text, though, I think we need to pause and talk a bit about what submission is not. Um, When Peter talks about submission, he doesn't mean submission without limitations. That is not a biblical doctrine. And so a couple of things that we need to just say outright that submission is not. Firstly, submission is not putting the husband in the place of Christ as if he were some sort of absolute authority. He is not. In just the same way that Peter and Paul teach us that we must submit to the authority of those who govern over us, like Adam kind of talked about last week, we only do so where obedience to that authority does not require disobedience to Jesus. If the emperor tells you that you can't pray, you can't gather with other believers, you can't share Jesus, then you disobey. And in the same way, if your husband requires disobedience to Jesus in any way, you disobey. He is not an absolute authority. Secondly, uh, submission is not passivity. It doesn't mean that you can't influence or guide or come alongside those in authority over you. Even in this text here, Peter is speaking to the wives, encouraging them to influence their husbands, to act in a way that they may win them for Christ, but to do so within the bounds of submission and respect. Thirdly, submission is not an indication of value. There is no differentiation in value to God. There are different roles, but no difference in value. The prime minister of our country is no more valuable than the newest born baby in our nation. We might kind of spend a lot of money taking care of and protecting one and not the other, but they are both image bearers of God, both equally valued in the exact same way. And Peter draws out this truth uh, in verse 7 where he says that wives and husbands are heirs together in the gracious gift of life. And this was revolutionary thinking at the time, that wives were not less in value, but equal heirs. The Roman men hearing these ideas would have been dumbfounded that the Christian view was that women had equal value to a man in the eyes of Christians and their God. It would have been revolutionary for them to hear that. And finally, submission is not a tool for abuse. And this just has to be said. Because some people try to leverage this verse as a way to say, I'm the head of the household, you obey me. And if you have to say it like that, you're doing it wrong. That is not what this is about. 
You see, the culture here that Peter is writing to was a really harsh and brutal culture in the way that they treated and saw and valued women. But nowhere in Scripture will you find that women can be subject to any form of abuse. The opposite is true. When addressing how Christian men should treat their wives, Peter requires that they treat them with consideration and respect in verse 7. We see clear instructions in Colossians 3.19 that husbands must love their wives and must not be harsh or abusive with them. And just so we're completely clear, we as a church community, we stand against any form of abuse. Because it flies in the face of the call of Jesus to truly love one another. And if you find yourself in this church stuck in an abusive situation, please feel free to chat to myself. Please feel free to chat to Pastor Pip or one of the elders or leaders within our church if you feel comfortable. Because we as a community, we love you, we value you, and we are here for you, and we will always stand against abuse because that is not the Jesus way. Amen? Amen. Awesome. And so that's a bit of what submission is not, but what is it? And what is the text really saying about it? I'm so glad you guys asked that question because it's exactly what I'm going to answer now. So uh, we're going to have some words to the wives because that's where the text starts. So let's get into that. So in verse 1, Peter is emphasizing the important role and value of a wife in the life of an unbelieving husband. And he says something so powerful. He says that the husband may be won over without words. Without badgering, without nagging, without disrespect, but through behavior, through a life lived in purity and in reverence. And Peter says that's where real, undeniable beauty comes from. He minimizes, he brings down the value of adornment, of jewelry, of fancy clothes. And he says true beauty is in the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's Sight. He's saying, don't value what the Roman women around you value. Don't try to emphasize your worth through looks. There's something deeper to a godly woman than that. And ladies, this should be freeing. This should be liberating. Because in today's culture, honestly, a woman's worth is so wrapped up in her looks. Our culture can look down on those women that just don't play the game, don't constantly wear the lashes and paint every part of their body with spray tan and hair dye and nail color and lip color and eye color. You see, our modern culture is honestly yelling at Western women that you have to put on a mask of outward beauty so that you can finally be valued. But it's a cheapened value. Now, it's not to say that you can't wear these things, that you can't care about your appearance, but Peter here is he's de-emphasizing the value of these things. He's trying to put them in their proper place. And to be honest, guys, we all know that it's a bit of a kind of game of deception nowadays anyway. Honestly, I'm sure you guys have seen those videos where they do those like radical makeup transformations. You guys know the ones. Where they're like, they're like, and, and bef- they like egg on the before one as well. It's like put, put ugly makeup on beforehand to make them look even worse. So basically you get what looks like a mountain troll. And then by the end, by the end you have this like cover model, like runway model. It looks just like amazing. <laughs> Honestly, with enough contouring, enough makeup and some well-positioned lighting and some Photoshop, anyone can look like a cover model. Even Smeagol from Lord of the Rings. Get up there. I love, I love how those transformations often start with people with like no teeth as well. Like all of you here this morning with, with teeth, you're already one step ahead. Your mouth is 
naturally adorned. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Reminds me of that Song of Solomon, in like the Song of Solomon chapter 4, I think it's like verse 2, where he's like talking about how beautiful his lady is. It's something along the lines of like, like your, your teeth are like shorn sheep coming up from the washing, each of them in pairs, not one of them is missing. So hot, so romantic, you've got all your teeth. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, anyway. but Peter is emphasizing real, genuine beauty. It's deeper, it's deeper. It lives in the heart, it overflows, it speaks volumes. The quiet confidence of a woman who has her faith and trust in Jesus, a, a woman with purity and reverence. And he's teaching that Christian women shouldn't be defined by external beauty, but by these things. The most notable thing about a Christian woman should be her inner beauty. Beauty that, according to Peter, is unfading. And from here, Peter switches gear back into uh, sub that submission role again, looking back at how holy women of old adorned themselves with submission and character. He specifically mentions Sarah here, the mother of the nation of Israel. And this is a really interesting reference uh, because there's only actually one recorded instance of Sarah uh, calling uh, Abraham Lord. But here, Peter is calling on like Jewish royalty to emphasize his point. I mean, Sarah knew full well uh, that Abraham wasn't perfect. She was there for all of his faults and all of his failures and all of his wins, but she defers to his leadership. And Peter says that you are her daughters if you do what is right and follow her footsteps. Because the truth is, Sarah knew her husband, as well as most of you wives here today, know your husbands. She could have said, hey, you remember that time you lied about me and said that I was your sister to save your own skin? Mm-mm. You do not deserve to lead. I'm taking the reins here. But she didn't. She submitted herself to him. And guys, that's not necessarily easy. The whole book of First Peter is emphasizing that we live in a broken world, a world that is not our final destination, one that we are passing through as foreigners and aliens here, but submission is a part of our lives while we are here. There are often people that we have to submit to and people that have to submit to us. It's a part of life. Everybody lives with a chain of authority and not all authority is handled well. But in marriage, God has ordained that the husband bears the weight of the leadership role. Now, this text that we're reading this morning is really focusing on Christian women married to non-Christian husbands, but the principle of submission in marriage holds true across the New Testament for Christian marriages. Uh, Paul, uh, in Ephesians 5, mirrors a lot of what Peter is saying here. He says this in verse 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now do we know exactly why God ordained it like this? I mean, we can try and glean an answer from Scripture, but in the end, the simple answer is because God said so. And if he said it was the other way around, there would be no arguing with him. 
He's God. He is the absolute authority. And so that's the benefit that he has in being God. But there is something that we need to understand about this uh, as 21st century people who are very sensitive to this kind of thing. Leadership and submission within the kingdom of God is just not like it is in the world out there. Like the book of Peter has emphasized, we're not citizens of this world. We follow a different way. We are aliens. We are foreigners. And in uh, Philippians 2, we see Paul writing about Christ saying that he took on the very nature himself of a servant, humbling himself, becoming obedient even to death on a cross, the most shameful way to die in the ancient world. You see, Jesus himself submitted to the Father. Though equal, he took on the position of submission. No wife is being called to do today what Jesus has not done. He submitted himself. That submission was painful, agonizing, and resulted in his own death. But that submission, willingly given, resulted in the salvation of all of mankind. In John 13, 1-17, Jesus demonstrates, though, how he is redefining what authority and leadership looks like. After washing his disciples' feet, he says this. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And this, this is leadership according to Jesus. Leadership in the kingdom of God is servant leadership. And that is leadership within the context of marriage. And I love the way the Kellers put it in the meaning of marriage. Speaking to these specific verses here, in John 13, they say this. They say, The master has just made himself into a servant who has washed his disciples' feet, thus demonstrating in the most dramatic way that authority and leadership mean that you become the servant. You die to self in order to love and serve the other. Jesus redefined all authority as servant authority. Any exercise of power can only be be done in service to the other, not to please oneself. I love that. And this is what wives are called to submit to in the context of a Christian marriage. Submission to one that is called to serve them, to wash their feet, to value them above themselves. You see, submission and leadership in that context can be a wonderful, beautiful, harmonious thing. That is God's intent for marriage because the truth is there is a better way than what the world has out there, and that is God's way. And so that brings us to husbands. Husbands, you are called to lead, but you are called to lead by serving your wife and your family. Do you wash all the wives are like, oh, listen up. <laughs> Do you wash the feet of your wives in every sphere of their lives? Do you lead with strength, but also with humility? In the text here, Peter continues on with that kind of likewise or in the same way statement. Husbands, if you have a non-Christian wife, you win her over, not by brute force as the stronger partner, you do so with considerate respect, knowing that you are equally loved by God, equal heirs of salvation. Peter here is encouraging 
gentle, considerate, respectful leadership because if as a leader you step outside the plan that God has for marriage, your own relationship with God is affected and your prayers are hindered. Do any husbands here want their prayers hindered this morning? There's no hands, not one. It's a really good sign. So husbands, in your leadership, you need to give an account to God. Leadership comes with accountability. It comes with responsibility. In the same way that wives will be accountable to God for how they willingly respected and submitted to their husband's leadership role, the husband will be accountable for how he leads his wife and leads his family with a servant heart. In Ephesians 5, Paul doesn't just finish uh, that section by addressing the wives. He goes on to say something truly remarkable. In verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What a high calling, husbands, that is. What a difficult thing that is. But this is the heart of Christian leadership in marriage and in the home and in the family. Husbands, you are called to lead by being willing to die for your wife. In the same way that Jesus loved the church and gave up his life for her, you are called to do the same. If you're going to lead, that comes with deep responsibility. And this is how a beautiful marriage should work. This is how there is harmony in submission and leadership. This is God's way, God's plan, God's design for us. And though the world might hate it, they might rile against it, it is good and it should be unapologetically celebrated because there is a better way. And that's God's way. And my wife and I, we try to really celebrate this in our marriage. I love to lead my family, but it feels weighty and it feels scary at times. But I really do want to lead well, but I also don't want to lead alone. I need my wife. She comes alongside me in everything. She encourages my leadership when I'm not doing the best with it. When I struggle to be the man that I should be, she doesn't try to kind of wrangle that leadership out of my hands or berate me with disrespect. She encourages me in it. She lifts me up. She advises me. She prays for me. She respectfully directs my mind and my heart and my attention so I can be a better servant leader within our home. And it's not easy. Anyone who's been in any leadership role knows that leadership is not necessarily easy. But I love my wife. Uh, when push comes to shove, I want to be able to lay down my life for her and for my family. And it's my hope and it's really my prayer that Stacy would be able to joyfully follow my leadership in that as I seek to serve her. And I actually asked my wife about this, what she kind of thought about it all. I just wanted to kind of hear her honest thoughts. And she said something really interesting. She said, that she actually really loves the way that God has structured it and structured our family. She gets to weigh in on every decision, share thoughts, preferences, ideas, but she actually finds it really freeing for her personally that the weight of those decisions falls on me. It, the good thing is she trusts me in that, but ultimately she's trusting Christ and the way Christ has organized our family. It allows her to be part of every decision without always walking around wearing the weight of every decision. You see, some people, what they're going to do is they're going to try to abuse that leadership and submission relationship. They will. 
I mean, I remember when I had my first job at Maccas, and you'd have those people that just like got promoted up into management. I mean, it's Maccas, like literally Maccas. But the power would just go to their head straight away. Like, I mean, I mean, seriously, power is corrupting, even in the most micro doses at McDonald's over a couple of teenagers. I'm sure you guys have experienced that. Some people are just craving the opportunity to be able to lord it over somebody else. It's just the way it is. But the husband that is violent with his wife or manipulates and controls or abuses her has no idea what Christian leadership is really about. You see, God's kingdom is upside down from the rest of the world. The power dynamic of Christian leadership is meant to be different. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this. He says, The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God is the great equalizer. The ancient world was just so incredibly hierarchical, but instead, things are flipped in the kingdom of God. The family in Rome served the pater familias, but in the kingdom of God, the pater familias serves the entire family. It's completely different. God's kingdom is different. And so as we finish this morning... What are some of the practical applications for us to walk away with? This is, a, this is a tough subject to talk about. Our culture is not comfortable with this at all. But as, we're, as we've established through this series in uh, First Peter, we are not of this world. We are sojourners. The way we do marriage should not look like the world around us does marriage. And thank goodness, because it's not working. It's not working out there. The world may hate how we live, how we see gender, how we see submission, but we are not of this world, and the way we form our marriages, the way we have harmony within them, should be a witness. And so, husbands, if you have a wife already, you need to lead. You need to be the spiritual head of the family. You need to be pushing into God and taking your family with you. You need to be the leader. It will be incredibly frustrating for your wife to submit to you out of reverence for Christ, but not have you lead in the way that you are called and the way that you are supposed to. Step up into that. Love your wife and kids like Christ loved the church. Be willing to lay down your life for them just like Jesus did for the church. And not by just working long hours to provide more money for more stuff. Be present. Lead, listen, guide, pray. Lead devotionals with your kids and with your family. Give instruction. Support your wife. Check in with her heart. Lay down your life in the ways that count and weigh each decision that you have to make as a leader with a lot of prayer and in the word of God. And wives, can I encourage you, do not wrangle leadership from your husbands. Encourage them in it. Not because they necessarily deserve it, but because you ultimately are submitting to Christ when you do. Because Christ isn't about what we deserve. And aren't we grateful for that? Pray for them. Emphasize their value to the family. Give respect where you can and defer to them because your husband is ultimately accountable to God for his leadership. Be his biggest fan. 
How much does our culture just love it uh, and celebrate wives just deriding their husbands all the time? They have to be the butt of every joke and nearly every portrayal that you see of a husband or a dad in media is that of this idiot buffoon. I'm so sick of that stereotype, that Homer Simpson dad and husband thing. Don't buy into that. Be different to the, to the world in the way that you respect and honour and support and encourage your husband, the way that you speak about him. Western society has completely tried to neuter men. Some men want to lead, but they feel like they can't because our culture has just like vilified masculinity as if it was some kind of disease. It's not. Real masculinity is a wonderful thing designed by God and to be used for good, and we should be celebrating real good masculinity. Because God made men and he made women and our differences should be celebrated and brought together in harmony in Christ. Because in the end, the husband and the wife should be operating as one. Joined together as one. Most of the time, you guys should be seeing things eye to eye. You'll work things out through discussion and through prayer uh, and in the word of God and come to an agreement. But where there is no agreement, where you cannot see eye to eye, the final responsibility for the decision and direction taken will fall to the husband. God will hold him accountable for that. Where there are two votes in a marriage, God has said that the husband has the sway vote. But the thing is, the husband is called to make that decision not for his own interest, not for his own benefit. It is only to be exercised selflessly for the benefit of the other for the wife, for the kids, and in obedience to the Lord. You see, God's kind of ordered this sort of tiebreaker into our marriages that helps the marriage themselves not break down when the husband and wife can't see eye to eye. The wife can say, I've said my piece, I've put my argument forward, now I leave it to him and ultimately to Christ. But the marriage remains. The issue doesn't tear at the fabric of the marriage because, guys, God loves marriage. God made marriage. God wants our marriages to last and to be fruitful and to be beautiful, to be a solid foundation for our families and the family unit. God wants us to submit to him and to each other out of reverence for Christ. And he wants our marriages to be different because marriage done his way should be different. And when we order our marriages around God's way, they can be harmonious in a way that the world sees them as different. And like the rest of our lives, guys, our marriages and the way we respect, the way we submit, the way we lay down our lives for each other should be a testimony to the world out there because when it comes to marriage, there is a better way. And that's God's way. Amen? Amen. Let's just pray together as the team comes up for the final song. Lord, we thank you so much uh, that your word is true, uh, that we can lean on your word, we can rely on it, Lord. And we just pray for every person in this room. Lord God, we pray for all of the marriages in this room, all the husbands and the wives, that you would bring great unity, great respect, and that you would just infuse our marriages, Lord God, with your spirit in a way that we live lives that shine your light. We just pray, God, for harmony within our marriages uh, and that we would learn to lead with uh, respect as servants, that that submission uh, and leadership relationship would just be a bright light, Lord God, to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.